Welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co-host, Ian Hamilton. And I am the Diet Pepsi co-host, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after one season, or in this case, during its first and only season. Isn't that right, John? That is correct. We are stringing together a bunch of sketches, bringing in the most subversive minds that we possibly could And we are doing some weird dance that nobody seemed to want at the time on the graves of these shows, figuring out what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Today we are talking about one of the most infamous one and done shows, I think, the Dana Carvey show. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about what we are watching. Ian, you said that you had a nice restful weekend. Before we started recording this, what have you been filling your eyeballs with as part of that? I'm wondering what your reaction is going to be to this, but it's going to be strong. Whatever it is, offer. Oh, with Miles Teller. Okay, and it is a perfect blend of good and cheesy. Yeah, for me, like there are great scenes, but so much of the show is like. Uh, I'm a brooding man just trying to make something happen with, you know, mafia fantasies of being this, you know, stoic guy that everyone wants their movie heroes to be. And, uh, you know, a girlfriend that's like, let me help you. Let me help you. And he's like, no, babe, I got to do go on this alone. Only he doesn't say babe. And then you say rushing or dragging. What? That's a Miles Teller whiplash reference oh okay got it mm-hmm. uh i have not seen it forever still haven't seen tar <sighs> at this point who knows if i ever will i want to but it's like uh shawshank you know i got a big shawshank hole in my catalog and you know do i watch tar first or do i absolutely get along to shawshank which speaking of in preparation for this show today i was watching an interview with steve carell and stephen colbert And Colbert said the same thing, that he has never seen Shawshank and knows it's this glaring hole in his, like, in the movies he's seen, but at this point has kind of kept that hole there because it's a thing now. And I turned to Natalie and I was like, this is exactly what I say about Shawshank. And I don't know why. Can I make a bold prediction? Yes. I think that your tombstone is going to read, husband, friend, never saw Shawshank. I hope not. I hope not. But at this point, I have more reason to not watch it than I do to watch it. Okay, but what is is the reason not to watch it? Is it just because you've made it some weird part of your identity that you haven't watched Shawshank? Yeah, uh, there was a girlfriend I had in high school, and neither of us had watched it. And we said we'd watch it together, and we never did. And uh, then it just kind of became this thing that I'd never seen it. And uh, who knows if I ever will. And this is going on like 13 years strong, this thought process. That is an aimless and weird thought process. But are you liking the offer? (laughs) Some of the scenes are great. Like 
a great monologue, you know, or like kind of funny Giovanni Ribisi nonsense, you know. And uh, I really like the Mario Puzo and the Francis Ford Coppola interactions. Is it a good show? No, I, I don't think it is. I think it's a bad show disguised as a good show. But uh, I am enjoying it very much. Yes. John, what are you watching? <laughs> do you want to comment on that or do you want to go on to what you're watching? I'll just move on. So I'm in this place where I have a bunch of shows that I need to rewatch because their new seasons are coming up. So like Ted Lasso, I have kind of started watching. Barry is another one that I need to rewatch season three before the final season starts airing. But the one that I'm most enjoying right now is rewatching the other two, which I don't mm. know if I've talked about on this podcast. You as did much. early on last year okay. because it's a show that I know you love and Molly Shannon is amazing in it. And I still have not watched it. Oh, right. We, when we were talking about cracking up probably. Yeah. Mm. I think that pound for pound, it is the funniest show that's on TV. I'm not saying it's the best comedy. I'm just thinking in terms of consistency and quality of laughs, that show brings it every single episode, starting with the pilot. It is so self-assured. It's great satire, but it's not just satire. They care so much about the characters. It is just an absolute delight from start to finish and it's available on HBO max. And again, I think I've brought this up before, but it does have the greatest line at the end of a season that I think ever was where they have an entire season that they aired post pandemic. And then they don't make any mention of the pandemic throughout the entire season. And then the very last line of season two is, and it looks like things are looking up for Carrie Dubeck. So mark your calendars. Today, March 12th, 2020, is the day where things finally start turning around. And uh, it's hilarious. I love, love, love the other two. And it's time for the listeners to mark their calendars for right now because it's showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! In 1996, one of the biggest comedy stars in the world made his largely anticipated return to the small screen. Unfortunately, ABC was not gonna do it, as the Dana Carvey show was canceled after seven of its eight episodes. Are people going to recognize that you just did a Dana Carvey George Bush impression? I think if there's anything about him to recognize beyond maybe Garth from Wayne's World, it is that. What about Church Lady? I don't think Church Lady has had as much staying power. You're right. I don't think it holds as much cultural water as we might have thought that it would. Or Hans no. and Franz? No, that's another one. The old SNL mold of taking a character and then basically just making new scenes out of that character over and over again doesn't mm -hmm. work in the YouTube era because... You know, back then it was just like you tune in to watch the thing you like. Yeah. But now, since you can rewatch something over and over again, uh, you have to immediately start subverting a character if you want it to keep going. Otherwise, you just got to move on. Like SNL cannot just hang its hat on characters the way that it used to. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. Yeah. With binging, with YouTube, 
when you have to consistently re-examine things, you can't have the distance like you would with broadcast TV to make those characters work in the way that makes the most sense. And you kind of feel that a little bit with watching old episodes of SNL. And this model also is kind of being adopted too in a different way for the Dana Carvey show, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, but it subverts itself right from the beginning. So that's fair. You know, it's not the, just that they have a character with one thing that they do and they can do it week after week. Even eventually we get to this character where Charles Grodin had a talk show for a little while and oh, right. Dana character does an impression of him in the, I just called him Dana character. Did you catch that? You did call him Dana character, but like, Let's let's hold on that for a second because <laughs> Dana Carvey <laughs> Dana Carvey is his characters. Like yes. let's just talk for a bit about Dana Carvey as a performer. You know, he made his meal on SNL doing about four or five different characters and also being a impressionist, which I think is the thing that he has kind of sold himself on consistently is his ability to take on different voices, adapt them for different situations. And that is what people have expected from him since the like late eighties. I feel like that. I'm is- really glad that you brought this up because did you read the 1993 Rolling Stone article about him? No, it's pretty interesting. But when he left SNL, he was one of the biggest stars in the world because it was on the heels of Wayne's world. Uh, one and two, which came out in successive years, actually. And then he left SNL after being like the guy on SNL. Like, I remember hearing a story of David Spade thinking he was going to play a character and nobody told him that he was just standing in so that Dana could do two or three impressions in the scene. And he didn't know until like, literally he saw Dana step up in the same costume that he was wearing. So when you say that he is his impressions, it makes me think of this anecdote from John Cleese's autobiography about writing for Peter Sellers. So him and Graham Chapman wrote movies for him and they just hang out at his house all day and write. And he said that Peter Sellers is such a impressionist character driven actor that literally he would wake up in the morning and start talking to them in voices. And it was like he didn't have his own personality because his personality Mm. was just doing the voices that he had. And that's what this Rolling Stone article talks about is that like they have to ask his wife who Dana Carvey is because hanging out with him, he's just kind of always on. And then when Mm. they're talking to... Uh, Phil Hartman about him or they're talking to Kevin Nealon about him they're just like oh yeah he's always doing this 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 is who he is and his wife is the only one that's like no he's like pretty serious and kind of brooding and actually really intense and Dana Carvey is like wow am I and she's like yeah because like her and their family are the only one where he really feels like he has his guard down. And even then he's doing bits. Mm -hmm. John, something else I wanted to look into while 
researching this show and Dana Carvey himself is like, do you know to the extent of which he was a star and not just a star, but like the star, like famous person? I don't. And I don't really have that kind of grasp on him like I do on other people from that era, the, you know, the Farleys or the Sandlers or the Spades. But I do know just from doing my own research and just having a general understanding that he was a real sort of like all sectors appeal kind of guy. Like Mm -hmm. he was the family guy. He was the subversive teen Gen Xer guy. He was, uh, he got the olds, I'm sure, as well. But what sort of evidence are you leading toward? (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I'm not actually leading towards anything because me and you, I think, know he was a big star, but that's more for people like over the age of 40 that remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to quantify because he was huge. When he left SNL in 1993, he was huge. He was going to do the David Letterman uh, spot when he left late night and Conan and Robert Smigel were supposed to produce. And he decided not to and didn't work too much for three years. And then even after the Dana Carvey show, He had a massive heart attack. He like retired multiple times so he could just like be a dad. Mm -hmm. And I think that in the last 25 years, he has laid low enough where culturally it's difficult for us under the age of, let's say, 40 to really grasp what a big, big, big star he was in the late 80s and early 90s a true like 90s generational talent that somehow i don't feel like has become like a punchline you know what i mean like you think about those people who took off i'm thinking a lot about like 80s stars like a Corey haim or an annabeth gish where they were these huge names for like brief periods of time yeah i'm going gish and (laughs) And then they flame out and then they sort of are shorthand for stars for brief periods of time. I don't think that Dana Carvey got there, even though I do kind of see him as kind of a product of his time because of stuff like the work that he did on SNL and stuff even like this, where he is really revered by an entire generation of comedians that he was part of and also a generation that followed him too, that have still kind of held him up and kept him in the conversation, even when he hasn't necessarily been a part of it himself. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Because after like master of disguise, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. was a huge disaster in the early two thousands and rightfully so. Have you ever he seen basically, it? I mean, as a kid, and then I watched a couple clips, and it's rough stuff. <laughs> you know the story about uh, them on filming that on 9-11, right? No. Okay. So here's how the legend goes. And I read something recently where he confirmed that this was the story. One of the big sort of set pieces of the Master of Disguise is him as 
like a turtle guy. He wears a big suit and he's got a bald head and turtle, like turtle. turtle, 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 that thing. He was in that costume and they were filming that scene when 9-11 happened. And oh so my God. they were all, the entire set was mourning and they had this moment of silence and Dana Carvey was dressed as the freaking turtle guy. <laughs> So that's the legend of that. <laughs> it's yeah. Wow. It's, it's wild. Yeah. I think the reason he's not a punchline is that he is a very nice person. I yeah. think. I mean, yeah. Every account of him is just being like gracious and kind of quiet and nice and just like his motivation in life is truly to just be silly goofy and make everybody laugh all the time and i mean most of my exposure to him as an adult is just through podcasts interview podcasts like kevin pollack chat show or on conan o'brien needs a friend the first summer that they were doing the podcast they just had like four to six episodes where it's just him and dana carvey hmm. riffing yeah and like you get that he is a very lovely human being. Yeah. And then, so I think personally, he's had a lot of love and staying power. But as far as his comedy, it's very goofy. And my take on goofiness is that it doesn't have a lot of staying power. That is an excellent point and kind of gets at what I'm thinking about too, which is, he is goofy, and the stuff that we were saying before about how the character is coming back week after week, and that being the reason you tune in, and that doesn't really work anymore, I fully agree with that. However, there's no denying that he is so good at that. And oh, even though absolutely. that doesn't have the same power, like his wheelhouse, I don't think has translated as well. It's not offensive. And he's arguably one of the best at that thing. And well, not offensive is a little tough because. Okay, we could get into that. So the Data Carvey show was his sort of middle finger to the network television and sketch comedy scene of the mid 90s. And we know this because it is arguably one of the most documented failures of a tv show and there's even a in my opinion a really fantastic hulu documentary called too funny to fail where oh i loved that documentary it's and so good. when it came out it they hulu also bought the rights to stream the dana carvey show at the time so they came out in conjunction with one another which made sense because Steve Colbert was on the show. Steve Carell was on the show. Charlie Kaufman wrote for the show. It was the head writer was Louis C.K., who I think would, you know, all of this stuff about him would come out only a month or two after the documentary dropped. Mm -hmm. um, there was Robert Smigel, who co-created the Conan O'Brien late night show. Voice of Triumph, the insult comic dog as well. You know, he right. is and the uh, Saturday TV Funhouse later on SNL and Bob Odenkirk, I think, was a part of it, too. I mean, this was a real sort of murderer's row of soon to be fantastic talent. 
that yeah. went on to do all these great, great things. I feel like uh, Robert Carlock is on there, and he's kind of your boy, isn't he? I love 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I mean, they reference him in this documentary as one of the most successful showrunners that's currently working, and I do agree with that. Yeah. So this show launched the careers of a lot of people. It truly was. They just found a bunch of funny people that their sensibilities seemed to mesh with theirs, and they went for it. It wasn't like most shows where they take at least a couple well-established writers. It was like Robert Smigel and Louie were the only really established ones because they had success, if you can call it that, launching Conan O'Brien on Late Night, which that show in itself was like troubled for years until they finally got a contract that was like longer than a month at a time. Uh So it's funny. They had success, but Robert Smigel left that show after like two years. You could argue that actually it wasn't a great success. (laughs) I never thought about that before. Yeah. That's why we do this. What is success? Am I right? Yeah. I mean, have we laid enough foundation here for the people to understand what's going on, John? Or at least what started it. But let's talk about what the show actually was right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. Well, John, I think there's only one way to start talking about the highlights of the show, and that is with the beginning of the show, which is infamous, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So let's rip open our shirts and dive into the first sketch of the Data Carvey show. Where no, you rip open your shirt and I will suckle at the teat. Well, that's what literally happened in the first three minutes of the Data Carvey show. So the whole story goes that ABC, who aired the Data Carvey show, kind of bought the show thinking it was going to be more church lady, more Wayne and Garth, more Hans and Franz. And so Robert Smigel... And Louis C.K. were like, you know what? We're going to be bold and we are going to draw a line in the sand. Either you're with us or you're against us. And there was some pushback about that. And they're like, yeah, okay, like we'll see. But they ultimately went with this one sketch where Dana Carvey is playing Bill Clinton. And it starts off pretty innocuous, I think. Yeah, it's a bit like an SNL cold open. Yeah, he's there. He looks a little disproportionate he's doing right. his bill clinton you know he's he's talking about how he's got his campaign coming up and so therefore he's uh got hillary locked away because she's too much of a liability oh laugh 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 and then he goes on to say that he is there to support the entire country and because hillary is no longer there he is going to be both father and mother to the country at which point He rips open his shirt and he has eight nipples as a dog or any other feeding mammal might have. And the sketch just goes on and there is milk coming out of these nipples. 
and they throw a baby doll in front of his nipples and then they throw a live puppy and another live puppy and a live kitten and he's just feeding all of these animals and that and then he turns around and stands up and apparently he's been sitting the entire time too on a nest of eggs because he has surgically attached a hen's ass to him right and thus begins the Dana Carvey show so the story goes that ABC was really on the fence about this sketch to begin with and then their lead-in was home improvement which had like 25 million viewers at that time yes Home Improvement had 25 million viewers per episode at that time. And so they had a strong lead-in, but the Taco Bell Presents Dana Carvey show immediately lost, I've heard numbers from 2 million to 10 million viewers in the first five minutes, in the first sketch, basically. And uh, even the ABC executive in the Hulu documentary talked about how they paid extra money for like minute by minute viewership ratings for this. Where like basically people have the buttons that are like, do you like what's going on or do you not like what's going on? Tap like or tap don't like. And so many people were tapping do not like throughout this sketch. Um, So the show started out on a really bad foot and... You know, by episode two, Dana Carvey is basically having to defend himself because the show uh, always starts out with a cold open sketch and then like, welcome to the Dana Carvey show with this new sponsor every week. And he comes out in front of a live audience and they can ask him questions or he does a little bit or whatever it is. And then we go to pure sketch show format. But so in his introduction in the second episode, he's like, I don't know, defensive is the right word, but he's still like high energy goofy, right? Yeah, he comes out and he sort of half jokingly starts to open up his shirt and he goes, no, 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 this feeding puppies. No, we are not doing that again. Uh-uh, not gonna happen. And the audience is kind of laughing And it definitely seemed like the execs were like, you need to apologize to the mothers and fathers and grandparents that had to sit through you shoving milk in the face of a baby golden retriever. Ian, what did you think about the sketch outside of like the controversy? Like, did you think it was a good sketch? I'm curious. Uh, I thought that the buildup took a little bit long to get there, uh, to be honest, like as a sketch, I think it's like silly. I think it's more silly than funny. Yeah. To be honest, like it's weird and that's fine. But I think that this show can be weird and clever at the same time. And I don't really know if that sketch succeeded. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's not this sort of offensive atomic bomb of comedy that they look back on, I think, in retrospect. Like, it's not this super alienating thing from a 2023 lens, but I guess it was enough to piss off most of America at the time. Right. 
anything from like my kids were watching to how dare you defame the president of the United States, even though I would never vote for him. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, reaction. So, so they got like death threats and like Steve Carell talks in the documentary about how the one nice letter that he got was from his mom. <laughs> right. Where they got hundreds of hate mail in the first week. They got like 10 fan letters and one of them was from his mom. And that was very funny. But the first show overall, John, felt a lot more political than the rest of, of the show. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it definitely had this sort of we're going to stick it to the establishment kind of thing. But overall, the political humor, again, maybe it's just by today's standards, felt pretty tame with the one exception of them showing Bob Dole taking the beating heart of an immigrant and taking a bite out of it. (laughs) That is the one part where I was like, oh, this is where they're really going for it. It's crazy how much that first episode is like controversial to the network. Um, Like Robert Smigel coming on and, you know, doing like, I'm here and the I'm the head guy at ABC and we love having Dana Carvey and like it's like a pretty inoffensive sketch that they took as this big slight which was very weird to me. Yeah. And you alluded to it earlier but I should sort of emphasize the point that each episode has a sponsor in front of the name of the Dana Carvey show so the first one is the Taco Bell Dana Carvey show. There's others that are the Mug Root Beer Dana Carvey show, the Mountain Dew David Dana Carvey show. Uh, and they talked in the documentary about how, oh, Taco Bell like loved this stuff. And then it wasn't until afterwards that it got this weird negative reception that Taco Bell really tried to distance itself from it. And that sort of like balance of oh, we don't mind you making fun of us, ha, ha, ha. And then you actually see them making fun of you, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Too much, church lady. Come on. Right. So basically, the show started off on the wrong foot with reviewers and with audiences and basically spent the next seven episodes making up for it and trying to dig itself out of a hole that it had created and out of you know some weird audience reactions and some really really bad reviews yeah um but let's talk a little bit about just like the content in the show itself john like the impressions right like Mm -hmm. okay dana carvey is an impressionist and i liked a lot of the stuff he did like i i thought there was a really strong sketch on here where he did regis philbin and It was a sketch that went on for like too long, but then it kept going and it got stronger as it kept going. In my opinion, it was like he had a really good um, Regis Philbin. But then what I was really impressed with were like Steve Carell had a a really amazing Gregory Peck impression out of nowhere. Uh, His Oliver Stone was great. Now, granted, the Gregory Peck sketch is incredibly offensive. But oh. he is not the offensive part of it. I wanted to bring up his impression of Gregory Peck. Stephen Colbert. Oh, my God. You said Carell. 
yeah, Colbert is the one that does Peck and Oliver Stone. And Colbert even talks about how he was not an impressionist. And Carell does, too, in the documentary. And yet they were doing all of these uh, sort of local news figures at the time, as well as sort of recognizable people in the news. Like, uh, you know, who is... Like, who are they doing? They've got, like, Casey Kasem and Paul Hogan and Ross Perot and Bob Dole (laughs) and Pat Buchanan. Yeah. Yeah. So many people that, you know, if you turned on your TV in 1996, you'd be like, ha-ha! But they do not have the staying power for the most part. I mean, I really wonder, like, what people younger than us would think about watching this and have pretty much no idea who any of those people are like me and you at least remember a lot of those names and those people like we're aware right but I think if you're 22 right now this would be like an alien coming down from outer space and it'd be completely unrecognizable to you yeah completely and even I have a tough time grappling with some of the figures that they are talking about I will say Okay, I don't know if you remember this because you and I were in the same class, but I have a very distinct memory of this. So you and I were in the same class. I believe it. we were in third grade when the 2000 election happened. Okay. And in Mrs. McQuillan's class, or maybe this was Ms. Foreman's class, maybe it was fourth grade, but anyway. Well, then I wouldn't have been in your class. I know, I know, but let's keep going with the story and just pretend that you're there even if you weren't. So we had a election and it was three people on the ticket. It was Al Gore, it was George Bush, and it was Pat Buchanan. And I had no idea who Pat Buchanan was at the time. Oh, this was Mrs. McQuillan's class. Okay, so you do remember this. So I had no idea who Pat Buchanan was, but I also didn't really know who George Bush or Al Gore were. But all of us, we voted privately You know, it was a learning experience about what it means to vote in an election. And there were 25 people in our first, second, and third grade class. And 12 people voted for George Bush. 12 people voted for Al Gore. (laughs) And this asshole voted for Pat Buchanan. And by this asshole, I mean me. I had no idea that Pat Buchanan was such a monstrous politician. But I just remember Mrs. McQuillan reading, and one for Pat Buchanan and me going, yeah, Buchanan. <laughs> wow. So I am the problem with democracy. Yeah. You're, mm-hmm. you know, that's why third party candidates steal votes away yep. from the other two that could have could have used those votes, John. Yep. And we so... should only have a two party system. Everybody knows that. It's perfect. <laughs> it's a flawless, flawless thing. So That's right. when I saw Pat Buchanan pop up on the Dana Carvey show, I was oh. brought back to my perfect illustration of the downfall of democracy. Yo, what did you think about Phil Hartman's Larry King? I thought it was good, but there was another thing like Jan Hooks was Kathy Lee Gifford in one episode too. And I was just like, oh man, Dana Carvey really wanted this boost for people to remember that he was on SNL a little bit. Like I thought Phil Hartman's Larry King was good, but it, his presence felt a little 
desperate just from a outsider's perspective for me. I don't know. What did you think? Uh, yes, I know what you mean. We're like, I think that he just needed boosts. You know, they were they were catching a lot of flack and he just had, you know, fan favorites like Phil Hartman and Jan Hooks come in to kind of take some of the pressure off of him, which is fine. But Phil Hartman's actual Larry King impression, like at first, it's so funny to me, like like the way that he he like just has his hand resting against his face. So his lips are like, just kind of like pooching out. It's not a big impression. That's the thing about it. Mm-hmm. It's not like over the top because during it, Dana Carvey's doing this really over the top Pat Buchanan bit uh, about Pat Buchanan being like, why would you say that I said that? And he's like, you just said that. He's like, yeah, I didn't just cause I said it doesn't mean I mean it, which I guess was something going on at the time. But Phil Hartman is doing like an underplayed and like to me perfect Larry King impression. Mm. Like it's low energy and he's doing these things with his face that are like subtle but I think really exact. And as it turns out, he had very little time to prepare it. So when we're talking about impressions, it's like I can't leave that one out. And I can't leave out uh, Elon Gold doing Howard Stern because that was like a perfect voice. Where if you turned the TV off and just had the volume going, it's like, holy crap, that is Howard Stern. Yeah. There were some really high quality impressions. I think one of my favorite of these sort of impression brigades was the Oliver Stone movie Nixon's. Where they oh, had my God. five different people doing a Nixon impression in one scene. Uh, so it would be like Nixon's wife laying in bed and then these five guys that are just surrounding her each doing their own Nixon impression. Well, I guess there were a lot of Nixon like movies and TV movies and stuff coming out at the time. Uh, Oliver Stone made in, one with Anthony Hopkins. Uh, There was a TV one, I think, with Rip Torn, um, Mm. and there were, what, two other ones. So they were doing impressions of these famous actors acting as Nixon, and then halfway through, they're like, and one guy in a a Nixon mask as well. That guy (laughs) killed me. That was fantastic. Did all of this Oliver Stone stuff remind you of the Ben Stiller show? Oh, dude, immediately. We'll do the Ben Stiller show at some point. Right, but talk in about the Ben that. Stiller show, there is, uh, what was it? It was Oliver Stone Land. Yeah, it was an amusement right? park where everything was based on an Oliver Stone movie. So for like Born on the Fourth of July, it was like bumper cars, but everyone was in wheelchairs. Which just tells me again that like Oliver Stone was this cultural, sorry to say, touchstone <laughs> at the time. And uh, that's something that I think younger people just like, wouldn't know why it was a thing, but it was. Yeah. So the impressions were a huge part of it because obviously this is Dana Carvey's brand, but there was so much just flat out weird stuff that it felt like they were throwing what they could out there. Like what's one that I could think of? Oh, I really like the, sketch where it was a so it's also a combination of stuff filmed in front of an audience and the filmed 
stuff. And you could tell that they filmed a lot of stuff before the first episode aired and the filmed stuff was very weird. And the in front of an audience stuff, I felt like got a little safer kind of as the run Mm. went on because they had filmed all this before. They just had all this stockpiled and then they got the feedback and they were like, oh, we need to adjust some things. But (laughs) there was one that was called like living in the techno future. And it was just this string of bits about like how technology is going to advance and so they had like one where a <laughs> fish was a house pet. And so the, you just had this big like flopping trout that just kind of worked its way over to Stephen Colbert as he's coming home with like a briefcase and a suit from a long day of work. And he's just petting this fish that's just flopping on the floor. Right. It was like technology that can allow fish to breathe so they can be pets just like a dog. You know, <laughs> there was also like, a t-shirt that showed you how many times you've worn it or like glasses that block out your entire vision except for bees so that you could see a swarm of bees coming at you. There was that kind of stuff just got me. What about you? Any like sort of weird stuff that stuck out to you? Uh, Just looking at my notes here, I kind of said it earlier, but Regis Philbin fighting a sewer rat. Oh, yeah was absolutely hilarious hilarious to me. I mean, he was running from the set of Regis and Kathy Lee all the way to David Letterman's office. And it's just this, like the bit at Regis and Kathy Lee's set was like pretty long. And then there's this really extended part where he's just running through the streets of New York, kind of like picking up a sandwich, falling into a sewer, fighting a rat, running into Carol Channing, uh, you know, climbing a, a building, you know, it just got really weird. And sometimes these sketches that they had, the longer ones felt long. And sometimes they felt long for a reason because it's like they want you to get into a lull so that then they can get like crazy with it. There was this one thing that kind of got into that lull thing that you talked about that I thought was hilarious. It was in the third episode and they talk about it in the documentary. It was in response to these network notes where the network was coming at them being like, you gotta tone it back. You gotta make things a little bit more palatable. And they say, well, everything on the nightly news is way worse than anything that we are talking about on the show. So they do a sketch where it is the 11 o'clock news that's easy to take. And so you've got Dana Carvey, who's putting on this voice, and he's talking about how China has missiles pointed at Taiwan, and China does not care about if U.S. intervention is going to help. And there's another thing where, like, Stephen Colbert is talking about guns in schools as a real issue as he's got, like, a parakeet on him, And then it cuts to Dana Carvey, like feeding a pony. And then. Right. He's like talking about a a gruesome murder or something while he's feeding the pony. Exactly. But then it ends with them cutting to their crime correspondent, Bob Ross, who is drawing a painting of mountains. And then he draws in the Menendez brothers. He's like, they killed their parents, but they're still nice people. Right? Yeah. They're, they're that friendly killed me. folk, I believe, is the line. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's, that's so much better. Yeah. yeah, I'm really glad you brought that sketch up too because that's another thing where the network took it as like this big offense or something. They're like, oh, we give you a note and then you just come out and you like rail on us like that. But I didn't get that at all from watching no. it, from just watching the show. What was really interesting about researching it was like, I've seen the documentary before, but this time around, I watched the show just as its own thing and mm -hmm. then got the stories afterwards. Whereas the first time I watched some stuff from the Dana Carvey show, it's like, I already knew the stories about it going into it. And so here I'm watching the sketch and I'm like, this is such a good idea. Yeah, This is really funny and subversive and, but also right on. But then to hear that the network was like, oh, they're scoffing at us on the air. It's like, no, you know, that's just, that's what they're supposed to do. Okay. Yeah. They're making fun of what everybody is watching and they have something to say and that is what they're supposed to do. So get out of their way, at least on this one. Yeah, at least on this one. But let's talk about the other side of things because there was some stuff where there's a line and they really like to play with where that line was in terms right. of borderline and on a couple of occasions crossing into something that is completely offensive in my eyes. Ian, can you think of any that you felt like were kind of bordering on that, but were still kind of on the acceptable line of things? Uh, yes. Okay. So a borderline one and you know, there are overtly racist ones uh, that are, you know, are not funny and don't hold up and, Stephen Colbert talks about that in the documentary as well. But yeah. like this one, that's a borderline one of like they were towing whatever this invisible line with ABC was, I think, was one where Prince Charles, Dana Carvey as Prince Charles, is talking about how he is trying to get the right back as the royal family to chop off the heads of their spouses. Yeah. Like his great, 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 great grandfather, Henry VIII did. He was like, we used to be allowed to do it. I say that we should be allowed to do it again. Uh, and it's like, again, a scene that goes on, like it's really long because he's talking for yeah. a while and it's funny, but then he sings about it and then oh, yeah. singing about it turns into this like, the who style trashing the stage and they have this princess Diana come out where he like puts her head in a guillotine and bashes her head off with a baseball bat and they're all destroying the stage. Meanwhile, the headless Diana is like dancing around and yeah. it's absolutely crazy because especially like in hindsight with, you know, the tragedy of princess Diana Mm -hmm. It's a bit rougher to watch. But at the time, it makes sense that, like, Charles would have this opinion and that this is, like, the extreme version of him <laughs> yeah. taking what we already know he thinks about her because they were fighting a lot in the press. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it took something real and then, like, just inflated it like crazy but people love princess diana and he decapitated her yeah. in front of the audience but it was very clearly this indictment of the prince not of her 
And no, but I, I still yeah. think it's the kind of thing that it's not broad comedy at all. No, it's not. That's completely fair. Or wait, it doesn't have mass appeal. I think it does that make it broad comedy if it doesn't have mass appeal? No, that means <laughs> broad appeal or broad comedy is mass appeal. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess all it right. also could just be big comedy. I don't know. The one I'm thinking of is Skinheads in Maine. So yes. <laughs> the idea behind that is there are two guys, Stephen Colbert and Dana Carvey, who are wearing like flannel, but also shaved heads. And they're sitting on a porch and they are casually whittling or very just generally mild mannered. Folksy is the term they use. Yes. Folksy is, I think, the best term. And so talking about the weather, talking about what it's like at City Hall. And then they'll just casually throw in things that are completely racist and horrible. Like Dana Carvey at one point said, you know, uh, it's a beautiful sunset we got over there. And then Colbert just goes, yeah, the weather's the one thing Jews can't control. Yeah, the weather's the one thing the Jews don't control, which was one of the more tamer lines in yeah, the sketch. Yeah, and I'm not going to repeat the other ones. But... Yeah, I was kind of afraid of which one you would pick because, <laughs> like, yeah. the thing about that sketch is they have to be offensive in order for it to work. Yeah. But also, like, they're, you could see as they're doing it that they wrote, they're like, what's the most offensive thing we can write that we could say isn't that offensive? Like, it's the shadow of how offensive skinheads really are, you know, which conceptually I totally understand, but in practice, don't do it. Do not (laughs) do it. The comedy math is there, but you got to take into account the fact that you are actually being offensive. Yes. The one sketch that I'm not going to put any sort of emphasis on though, is the Gregory Peck, I think it's the best animated foreign language short thing, which is just a parade of the most horrible, horrible stereotypes that is so absolutely unfunny in, I think, any light, even at that time. But you really get the sense that it was somebody in that writer's room or a collection of them with this group mind of like, let's say the most offensive thing, and it doesn't even need to be funny. And it wasn't. And it was horrifying to look at. I actually disagree with the idea that they thought it was the most offensive thing they could do. I think that at the time, stuff like that was very normal. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's right, but I think it was very normal. And I think that they're like, oh, yeah, we're putting on the teeth and we're doing the Asian voice, you know, because that's what comedy people do. You know, oh, now let's make fun of some you know, vague Arab stereotypes here, you know, and, and like a, you know, Indian or Pakistani person, you know, like where they're like, Oh, well, this is, this is what you do, you know, or, Mm -hmm. uh, OJ in blackface, you know, that was a different sketch. Uh, yeah. And it was just kind of like, this is, these are comedy traditions. This is what you do. So it's one of those things that like at the time, I actually think they thought it was fine. And I don't know how much of the line they thought they were towing on that one. Well, we're towing the line a little bit 
And I think we need to cross it, figure out whether we would renew or cancel the Dana Carvey show. We'll get to that in the Dunzo Awards right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Project Skeptic brings you PodFest 2023, April 23rd through the 29th. Seven episodes in seven days. Featuring Brent Hand from Hysteria 51, Justin Zinger from Zing This, Andy Hart from Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast, David Flora of Blurry Photos, and Ron of the Twisted Ten. Be there. April 23rd through the 29th on Project Skeptic. There were some people that were offended by the Dana Carvey show. There were some people that were annoyed by it. There were some people that hated it. There were some people that loved it. There were some people that thought it was okay. Ian, I am here to ask you, would you renew? I would renew. Absolutely. I thought the show got stronger as it kept going. I thought that they found their voice uh, throughout it. I thought it went from, like, I thought the first episode was probably the weakest one. Um, And when they were a little bit more choice with their political humor, as opposed to making two thirds of your episode Bob Dole jokes, you know, it got better. Um, and there were sketches that it's not a perfect show by any means. Like I kind of alluded to this, but some of the sketches are long and they feel long and some of the sketches are long and then they pay off really well. And I'm glad that they're long and I'm glad that they had the time to be able to take the time to do what it is they wanted to do and to get beyond silly and get into clever and get into strange clever and then get into fever dream you know Mm -hmm. uh it's not a perfect show but even watching some of it with natalie what i found was every episode is good for three big laughs like big big belly laughs for me and so when i think about it I think about how there were some parts where I just laughed so hard, like really, really hard. And that totally makes the idea of tuning in week after week worth it because it's crazy, man. Dana Carvey's got this energy that you think would get old, but it doesn't like he's diverse enough and strange enough and He even kind of talks about it in some interviews where like he gets bored. He doesn't want to do the same stuff. So as soon as something feels stale to him, he starts to change it. And I think that the show follows that instinct really well. And I think that had it been given a second season, it would have been really, really strong. Um, So, yeah, I absolutely would renew. Um, John, what about you? Would you renew? I would almost renew, but no. No, I would not. I didn't think the hit-to-miss ratio was high enough for me to 
be consistently entertained by it. I think that there was some really funny stuff, and I do completely agree with you that it got better as it went on. I think episodes six and seven in particular were really strong, but I think what made those strong was that they featured a lot more shorter premise-driven things, and I think that's where the show shined a little bit more because those long sketches, every single one of those long sketches felt long to me and I Mm. wanted them to end and they dragged and it really ruined the pacing of it for me. Yeah. It was usually like six minutes in the middle of the episode. Yeah. And it just felt like these writers and actors just kind of forcing this upon us. And I think that it's an interesting kind of time capsule of what comedy was like in the mid nineties, where you're kind of still being transitioned from a lot of big, broad, multiple sector appealing kind of comedy, the Tim Allen's for example, of the world, the home improvements. And you're also getting the sort of underground or at least the seeds of the kind of underground what's going to be the sort of UCB crowd taking over in the alt comedy scene. And it's really kind of teetering on the edge of that. So I think as a period of history, it's very interesting. As a sketch show, I don't think enough of it holds up for me to like it currently with my sensibilities. And Again, that's not to say that I didn't find some stuff very, very stupidly funny. But overall, I just found myself bored. And again, the impressions don't hold up. And it is a lot of the show, unfortunately, is these sort of, by today's standards, very dated things. And I I wish they had kind of followed the joy of the premises that they were coming up with and tightened things up a little bit as opposed to just kind of be like, whatever, we're going to do what we want. Because I think that that kind of cavalier, you know, devil may cry attitude overall hurt my personal experience watching it. As a writer, I like to create moments so that, the next moment can hit really hard. Like there was a show we did, uh, man, probably like 10 years ago now, uh, where we had a sketch show that the whole thing, it was life to death. And it was like the first sketch is about birth. And the last sketch is about someone dying. And it had been pretty much just funny throughout. I mean, relatively, but that was the goal anyway. Uh, and at the end, we ended with a eulogy for this guy that died. And it's five minutes of just a real eulogy. And so what I like about that is the audience goes from, oh, fun show, fun show, fun show. Okay, where is this going? Oh, oh, this is sad. Oh, this is like sad. This is, I don't like this. I don't, this isn't what we were watching before. I don't know why we're watching this. And then they start singing about how much they miss him. And then in the middle of the song, they realize that the dead guy owes all of these friends money 
And then they start singing about how much they hate him. And then it hits really hard. That was always like a big laugh from the audience. And so I do really enjoy kind of being the magician to make the audience look over here and look over here so that voila, look at this thing pop up that is now you're laughing harder because now it's like you're letting off steam. This moment now gets to transform into something else and something that you enjoy. And that is like, so me. And I felt like this show did that. Maybe not as eloquently as I just said it, but it did do that in a lot of ways. And that is kind of rare for me to get. I think that form though, is really crucial in everything that you just said. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree that the kind of long con, not con, but you know, the long play of a sort of comedy fits in a hour long live performance a lot better than it does in a 22 and a half minute network sitcom. And it just doesn't work as well when you are trying to have that effect in seven minutes of a 22-minute episode. It doesn't pay off enough for me to want to do. Like, dude, I hated that Regis sketch that you were talking about. No, I love that Hated it. It was so boring, and it just felt like they were just, you know, just, like, not even, like, keeping a thread, just kind of unspooling nothing onto the ground and then and then the yarn ball was undone and the thing was over and I felt nothing and didn't care at all. So there as was... long as that metaphor is over, that's all I care about. <laughs> uh well I won't win for best metaphor, but we have some other awards to give out. And those are the Dunzo Awards. That's right, it's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show that we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be a Ted Koppel Super Tuesday, or it could be Germans who say nice things. Whatever it may be, we have decided to give these shows their just desserts. Ian and I both have two Dunzo Awards to give out. Let's see if Ian remembers to let me give my second one out this week. Ian, what is your first Dunzo Award, though? Uh, mine is the Newt Gingrich Award, which oh. goes to what I thought was the best political sketch of the whole, sh- whole show. Um, for the most part, when they got too political, I actually wasn't very into it. I was like, all right, enough with the Bill Clinton. You know, Bob Dole has gone on too long. Uh, but they had, I think it was a cold open where... Newt Gingrich is talking about how the government can be more profitable and like all these monuments and stuff should stop just sitting there and and start making money. Like the tomb of the unknown soldier should be, should be the ATM of the unknown soldier and uh, how they should start putting advertisements for companies on the graves of soldiers in uh, whatever that big, uh, memorial is in Washington D. Arlington Cemetery. Yes. Thank you. I right. hard agree with everything you're saying. Just to name off a couple more, they talked about moving the homeless into zoos. 
Uh, he also <laughs> talked about phasing out the Lincoln Memorial because the only thing it's there to do is to say Lincoln's great. So all you need is a sign that says Lincoln's great. Uh, he also said that they could turn the White House into a riverboat casino. Right. Yes. And then the the putting homeless people in zoos is like, it's unfair that we're housing animals for free. Let's throw the homeless people in there, too, and they can hang out with the animals yeah. and be housed. Yes. So I hard agree with this. And contrary to everything that I like just said, that was a political sketch that I really enjoyed because there was a game to it. I was literally about to say game. Yeah. They played the game and they elevated it and they played it hard and they had a point of view and they just did it. Yeah. I am all for that. Um, what is your first Dunzo Award, John? My first Dunzo Award is the converse of that and I'm going to go with worst game and that is to the stupid pranksters runner that they had. No. I hated stupid pranksters. Uh, I really like the first one. And then they kept doing it, and I was so bored. So this idea is Steve Carell and Dana Carvey are these two guys. And I'll just say the first one. They go to a drive-thru. They order a bunch of food. Then they get to the drive-thru window, and then they pay for the food. And before the food comes to them, they drive away. And the whole thing is Steve Carell does a huge, like, bellied over laughing oh man we screwed him over we screwed him over so good and he's freaking out and i thought that was funny then yes. they did it about seven more times and it was always the exact same thing except for the very last episode where they like win the lottery and then they walk away from the check and then they play some sort of copyright free yeah. <laughs> version of hello darkness my old friend yes. uh or the sound of silence i mean and so there was at least some attempt at a payoff but at that point you know watching eight episodes in a row i was just like i could not care less about this honestly well they were generally pretty quick but i do understand it it did get old but what always got me every single time was how hard steve carell was committing to laughing in the car afterwards. That was more so me being like, hey, Steve Carell is doing a lot and God bless him for it, but I wasn't having fun with it personally. Sure. I mean, that was like, because I would be like, okay, I get what you're doing. And then Steve Carell would be going at it in the car and I'd be like, damn, he got me again. Like, I love this part. And Dana Carvey said that he would go, sorry, that Steve Carell would go so hard that he would get migraines after every time they filmed those scenes. Yeah, he said like he like almost burst a blood vessel in his eye. The one that I think that that worked with the two of them going together was the Germans who say nice things thing, where it was just Dana Carvey and Steve Carell standing, and they would have these very over-the-top German accents, and they would just say things like, you are the world's greatest grandpapa. Right. And you can tell that the joke just comes out of like Germans speaking English sounds very harsh to us. Yeah. So even when they say nice things, it sounds very harsh. Uh, actually, I'm the opposite of you on this one. I really couldn't stand that bit. Oh. I was over it really quickly. See, that was one where I felt like Steve Carell wasn't just like, you know, going from zero to 10. He was like building well enough within that so that he was trying to do something a little different. It was something with his arms or something with the 
cadence that he was going with, but he was playing with different sort of tones and pushing different buttons enough in that to make me enjoy the elevation of that, even though it was generally the same thing. Right. I did like him talking about that, the documentary too, of like, he's like, oh, a documentary is asking me like, what was the mechanism of coming up with this bit? Like what's, you know, what was the writing process like? And he's like, I just probably thought of it five minutes before I had to go on stage for a show once. Yeah. And then I pitched the idea to Dana once and he loved it. So we did it together. Like that's it. There's no big story behind like the cleverness of it. No. No, but I think that that's just kind of innate to Steve Carell too. Like he knows those. And But that's like I think that's how a lot of like good comedy comes out too is like some of the best ideas I had, maybe not sketches because I was younger, but it was like I had a show every Wednesday for a year and a half. So I had to come up with new material every Wednesday for a year and a half. So there were so many things that ended up being great that I was just like on my way there. And I'm like, Oh boy, I got to come up with a bit. Got to come up with a bit, you know? And then like I'm driving and there's 15 minutes until I get to the theater and I'm like, Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, that's a good idea. And I could have the other people do this. Oh yes. Great. And it would come together because it had to. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's all that is. And I do agree that the best comedy comes from those kind of circumstances, but also, I generally think some of the worst comedy also comes from those situations, too. Oh, yeah. I, I did not say the best comedy. I just said a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. I just think that, again, when we're talking about what's fun to watch consistently week after week, you know, when you have a Wednesday night show at a storefront theater in Chicago, it definitely has and creates a certain sensibility where that works. And when you put millions of dollars in budget behind that same sort of sensibility, I don't think that it plays as well as it could in other scenarios. But, Wait, but you liked that sketch. No, I'm saying that that process and overall, like the good stuff that could come from that process is something like that in my eyes, where it's, you know, the a dumb idea that's quick. It makes its point and it doesn't overstay its welcome. But then you also get some stuff that really overstays its welcome because it didn't have that time, you know, going through the machine right. a little bit to, you know, ring out the wrinkles, if you know what I mean. I'm going to step away from metaphors, though, because you hate when I do that, apparently. <laughs> what is your second Dunzo Award? I just hate when they're bad, John. Um, <laughs> my second Dunzo Award goes to young Steve Carell and half the re damn it. I did it again. I meant young Steve Colbert, but really I mean both of them. Okay. Like great. it's so fun to just see new material from them when it's like very goofy. Dude. It's very new. It's very goofy and they're just going for it. And it is really fun to watch for me. I loved it. Dude. Waiters who are nauseated by food is phenomenal. That thing was amazing. I I adored it. Dude. Absolutely. But just like seeing them, you know, they just have a little character pop up somewhere and be like, wow, that is good. 
you know, and it's and it's goofy and I don't even think it's that well thought out, but it's good. And it's just like, I don't know. It's like I'm getting more strangers with candy out of it or something. Like, okay. Yeah. I do get it's that. Just, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's nice. I think it made me enjoy the show more because actually Colbert especially, I felt like he had a lot of screen time in this. Yeah. And I mean- hearing the sort of behind the scenes of the casting process of that, how Carell was on Second City and Colbert was understudying for Carell at the time. And so Colbert really never thought that he was going to get it if Carell got it. And then Carell was the one that actually called Colbert to tell him that he got it, which that was, that just warmed my heart. Like to know that that was the sort of beginnings of, well, I mean, they knew each other, obviously, in Chicago when they were doing stuff, but it that chemistry showed, and I'm really glad that they were both there to reap the benefits. Yeah, that's like a dream, like um, Beck Bennett and Kyle Mooney being hired at SNL at the same time for different reasons, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't like either of those comedians as much as I like <laughs> these two, but it's still like, it's crazy. It's heartwarming and awesome because like that doesn't happen um no and it's great john what's your second dunzel huh come on friend tell me i'm dying to hear my second don't withhold from me john i want to hear your second dunzo and we'll be right back after this i'm just kidding um so my (laughs) my second dunzo is going to spotlight a different cast member and just for one sketch in particular uh heather morgan so this seemed to happen a lot in like the 90s where, you know, you'd have the one woman on the cast and the rest of the writer's room and the cast was clearly just a bunch of dudes trying to make each other laugh. And she would play the sort of obligatory wife role or the, uh, you know, woman who needed an impression or something like that. But Heather Morgan played that role on the Dana Carvey show. And there was one sketch that she did that I think is probably the hardest I laughed in the entire thing, which was all of the first ladies as dogs. And they just rolled through the last like five or six first ladies. And she would do them as sort of different barks and growls. So Hillary Clinton was like, and then, uh, Nixon's wife, I can't, or no, Barbara Bush was just like, I'm butchering it. Can't do it justice, but that absolutely slayed me. That premise was so simple, but she did it so well. She was great. And actually I thought she was talented. She was so talented, but I mean, like, I do think she, she wasn't relegated to just like playing the wife. Luckily, like anytime she came on and did something, you could tell they were writing something for her because it felt like she really made her stamp and her presence known because she is like a powder keg in the middle of this show, you know, Mm -hmm. Colbert and Carell and Dana Carvey are incredible, but she somehow 
matches Dana Carvey's energy, which I don't know if anyone else does. And she might outmatch it even because the roles that she does have are usually just insane. I mean, I think that that makes sense when you talk about things that just she was in. But I think that they kind of relegated her in some sketches where she was not the sort of spotlight or the focal point of it. Um, yeah. And I, you could tell that she is a fantastic character player. Like, if you saw her do a one-person show, you'd know that she would have some great characters. Like, they talked about her audition, and she brought a cage onto stage when she was doing an audition. And they showed a little clip of it in the documentary, and it was just her smoking in there and being like, Yep, I needed to be put in the kennel again. Richard told me I needed to. It was this housewife. It was hilarious. So, yeah, I think she was great when it was her, but other times I I felt like they kind of lost her voice, but clearly she has a very strong one. Yeah, it might have just been that she was so good in whatever they gave her that she just clawed her way to the top of her scenes. I mean powerhouse i i definitely recognize her too but i'm like what a shame that i can't think of anything she's in yeah it really is but where did everyone else go what happened to the dana carvey show outside of the messes that we've already talked about well we're going to dive into that right after this commercial break and now a word from our sponsors So, John, this show had one of the biggest comedy stars of the 80s and 90s as its lead, and it had many of the young future comedy stars as its writers and talent. So, why was this show not funny enough to not fail, unfail? Wow, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was a journey you took there for a very simple thought. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just being subversive, John. And if I may, a little bit edgy, Uh, which this show was bought by an ABC corporation that, oh, wait, that's redundant, but whatever, that uh, wanted to be edgy. You know, they were talking about hiring Dana Carvey to do a show as early as 1995, I think, maybe even 1994, where... You know, he was kind of just looking around, taking general meetings. After SNL, he did a movie, but he specifically did not take the Conan O'Brien slot because he wanted to have time for his kids. Letterman, I believe. Not Conan O'Brien, right? Well, it would have been what turned into Conan O'Brien. Right, sorry. Right, so it's the late night spot. Mm -hmm. Um, So he didn't do that because he's like, I have two little kids, you know, and I think he did a movie and but it was it was at least three years between SNL and the Dana Carvey show. So he was in talks with them for a while. And in that process, they bought the show. They're like, we want to be edgy. We want to be subversive. We want Dana Carvey. And then uh, it was announced in 1995 and completed in the months leading up to the show in 1996 that Disney bought ABC and all of a sudden they were a broad appeal family network. And one of the funniest things about the documentary 
is uh, watching <laughs> the. Are you going to talk about the promo? Yes. Oh the my promo god! For a very special home improvement where like Tim Allen is hugging a young Jonathan Taylor Thomas and there's some big problem. And we're Oh, I know this episode together sport. You do. What episode do. was it? It's an episode where Jonathan Taylor Thomas's character basically thinks for the entire episode that he has cancer and that he is going to die. And wow. it is a very heavy, very special episode about, you know, how are we going to get through this? Jonathan Taylor Thomas clearly says, like, I don't want to die. And they have the promo for this episode where Tim Allen's hugging him and everyone's crying. And then they cut to the thing. It says, on this very special episode of Home Improvement, followed immediately after by the Diet Mug Root Beer Dana Carvey show. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so good because they show this clip to Colbert, Dana Carvey, Smigel, and uh, Carell, and everyone is just blown away by how poorly these two shows connect to one another. Yeah, I mean, another thing that they talk about, too, is when ABC is announcing its sort of fall lineup where Dana Carvey show is being introduced, They've got Dana Carvey in a sort of centerfold TV guide thing with him, you know, doing one of those uh, kind of faces. And they even sort of Photoshop or whatever the precursor to Photoshop is, sort of a pink shirt onto Dana Carvey. And he is right next to Kermit the Frog. And you're like, these two things should not go back. Yeah. It's like, look at us two. We're teaming up to take on ABC. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, milking puppies. No, that's not the Muppets. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's feeding puppies via human breast milk, John. It's Ugh. not milking puppies. I'm sorry I, I get I the got semantics nipples, wrong. Can you milk can, me? Yes, I can, and I have, and I will again. One day when I'm comfortable enough. Um, nope. So Home Improvement was a big hit. They said that it regularly had $25 million viewers per episode uh it had a 14 share uh that it averaged that year which a share is like the percentage of viewers that it's getting of like people watching tv right then across all channels to reiterate they could not hold on to that audience they immediately lost anywhere from five to ten million people right off the bat on the first episode it got horrible reviews And then the Dana Carvey show would end up kind of redeeming itself because it had steady growth from there on out. There were even reviewers that came back to watch like episode four that then took back their original reviews and were like, this show is funny. You should be watching it. But overall, it could not um, be worth it, I guess, monetarily for ABC because it only ever averaged as high as a 7.8 share, which yeah. if you're paying big star money after you have one of the highest rated TV shows at the time, then 7.8% of the audience is just not enough. I mean, um, for context, Seinfeld was the biggest comedy at the time and it would average a 20.5 share. Um Friends would be 16.8 that year. So, yeah, it just uh, wasn't enough. And they ended up yanking the last episode and not 
airing it and instead showing a rerun of Coach. Oof. Which I know you've never watched, John, because on this podcast, you've admitted you don't even know who Jerry Van Dyke is. That is true. Still don't. Aha. So you say it. You say it again. We're going to play this tape for future generations to scoff at you. Please lay it on me. I need it. <laughs> I I thrive on your Jerry Van Dyke support. Right. You're like it, the the heel in WWE, right? You want mm, the hate. You want the booze. Do you smell what the Jerry Van Dyke is cooking? I don't. <laughs> and I don't care what it smells like. It probably smells like cabbage, if I'm going to be honest. Um, I will take your word for it. So that's pretty much it. Network-wise, it did not match up well. The viewers ran. The reviewers ran. And even though you do want to see growth out of a show, which it did have, uh, it just wasn't enough. And look, this is me speculating. I didn't see this in any articles. It wasn't in the documentary. But I got to think that it was so expensive to produce because I'm sure Dana Carvey had quite a salary. I'm sure Dana Carvey had a salary. A lot of it was pre-taped too, which is inherently more expensive than, you know, shooting stuff in front of a live audience, I feel like. I will also say too that, you know, we alluded to the sort of the Mountain Dew Dana Carvey show, the Pepsi Dana Carvey show. So they had these sponsors that put their name in front of the Dana Carvey show. And they thought it was kind of funny, but also sort of a throwback to the variety shows of like the 50s Colgate and 60s. Comedy Hour. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. And Taco Bell, when they pulled out of it, they made a big stink about it. They were like, we don't want to be associated with this. And so just from like an ad revenue perspective, not only do you have people like pulling their names from the front of the Dana Carvey show, you also have brands that are just kind of seeing this as a toxic wasteland for any sort of placements. So I'm sure ABC as a network was also having to deal with the ad revenue side of things after such a huge hole that they put themselves into for that first episode. And so much so that, what is it, the sixth episode is the Szechuan Dynasty Dana Carvey show, which they admit is a Chinese place on, I think it's 48th and Broadway that they would just order from. And they were like, we don't know if they actually paid money for this, but you know, I guess we're going to put them front and center. And I mean, it is kind of an ad for the Szechuan dynasty restaurant. I'm going (laughs) to say, I loved that though. I was was like, no, we should keep doing this. It was great. But I mean, they admitted in the documentary that, that wasn't entirely a creative choice, (laughs) like that. It was a funny kind of, (laughs) but also they did not have sponsors. Right. Even in that second episode kind of ramble frenzied defensive thing that he's doing at the beginning of the episode, he's like sponsors, ad revenue running reviewers. No, don't watch it. Dana. Sorry. No more nipple. No feed puppy. You know, and they uh, they were losing advertisers left and right. Although it's interesting because PepsiCo owns Taco Bell. Taco Bell said they wouldn't do it anymore. Pizza Hut said they wouldn't do it. But PepsiCo, as a larger company, said that they would uh, still hold on to the... They had like a three-episode agreement 
yeah. something like that with them. And then the third episode, though, is the Mountain Dew episode where they do everything but say outright that Mountain Dew looks like piss in the middle right. of the episode. <laughs> yeah. And so they just uh, bit the hand that fed them was kind of the line that was thrown out a lot. But that's why that line exists, because that's what they were doing. And it was true. And you. I made the mistake once of making a flippant joke at a networking event with somebody with money asking me how financers can be better to filmmakers. And I made a joke about it and how like, oh, they don't or something like that. And almost immediately was like, Ian, you had an opportunity here. Why did you blow it just to be a jerk? You know, there is this comedy instinct that is very strong to push back at the powers that be that have already rejected you so many times. And sometimes it's better to just be nice and be a person and play ball and keep the damn thing going instead of killing an opportunity when it presents itself to you. Yeah. We all know how disappointed we are in you, Ian. Um, Nobody knows it better than me, John. I think uh, I think you've got a pretty steady stable of people who that's true. truly know how uh, disappointing. No, I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not gonna go in down the that. conversations with you all talking about me behind my back. You know, I yeah. I can only imagine them, so it is a little different. Yeah, you're not part of the IDD, the Ian disappointment discussion. <laughs> it's a group chat. It's an acronym. There, it's a real thing. Definitely. Uh, I mean, as we're Slack finishing channel. this up. As we're finishing this up, do you want to spotlight any, like, one more thing that we have not talked about yet? Oh, another really interesting thing about the whole, like, home improvement right into the Dana Carvey show debacle is that they actually requested that they put a parental advisory at the beginning of the show. Dana Carvey and Robert Smigel did. But ABC said, no, they wouldn't do that because anytime they do it for shows, they immediately lose advertisers. Hmm. So in a way, ABC shot themselves in the foot, you know? Yeah, it was a colossal cross-channel kerfuffle, if you will. Oh, my gosh. Another thing is, remember on Feed the Beast, we talked about how you don't really do a David Schwimmer impression? Well, Elon Gold does probably the funniest, best David Schwimmer impression I've ever seen. I don't even know if it's accurate, but no one does a Schwimmer. No one. It's It was so good to me. I hated that Schwimmer. <laughs> it sucked. I really did not like it. But like, it, have you ever seen a good Schwimmer or even a Schwimmer, really? No, and I don't need to. It was maybe somebody challenging that guy to do a swimmer, and it didn't work. And then they still put it to film. I did not like it at all. I'm sorry. I think I, I am a little fascinated with like, there are some people that are just like unimpressionable. I'll talk about me even. I you are unimpressionable. People back at them all the time. Nobody does me. Nobody does me. 
I was bad. You're bad. Well, yeah. That's what the Slack channel says anyway. <laughs> no, not bad. Just disappointed. Right, right. Um, but I, I just thought that was kind of fascinating that somebody even tried because I don't even see anyone. Uh, hard, hard to encapsulate that Schwimmer. Yeah. What you about you, John? Any, anything else? Uh, C-SPAN After Dark is just a yes, flash and zoom into the Washington Monument. Fantastic. The whole thing of Food Network After Dark and they just do like close up of an open clam, if you yeah. can figure that out. Or uh, whipped cream dripping slowly over strawberries. And then uh, the first one they do is Discovery Channel after dark. Which is just animals humping, which is hilarious. Yeah. A great elevation of that bit. Fantastic. Right. And that was a great runner, too. I appreciated that they tried other runners other than uh, stupid pranksters. Yeah. No notes on that. It worked. Ian, where can people find us? Follow us at One and Done TV on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube Shorts, uh, you know, all the other places that we're not, we haven't even been posting to lately. Um, and then email us your thoughts on the Dana Carvey show and why you loved or hated it. Uh, I think there's a lot to love and a lot to hate about it. So love to hear your opinions on that. Um, one and done pot at gmail.com. Leave us a review on Spotify, on Apple Podcast, and wherever else you can leave reviews. Um, it really helps us, and we really need it. And we really need you to do it. So just do it, okay? And don't be a dick about it either. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has been, but it's just, please don't be. Yeah, uh, continue to not be. Yeah, yeah. Continue to not be a dick about it. Yeah, would you continue just being a nice person for once? God. Just be a nice person again and again and again until you die, damn it. Continuously love things with an open heart and an open mind, you pieces of Practice empathy, God damn it. And um, I think that's really all we have to plug. So... Uh, yeah, next week we will be putting the urban in suburban. Uh, oh that's not offensive. That is the actual tagline to Method and Red, which we will talk about next week. But in the meantime, Dana Carvey, well, isn't he special? Isn't he special? Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media. Hey everyone, it's Ian again, reminding you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at One and Done TV. You can find updates of what we are going to be reviewing, what we have reviewed. You can comment. Maybe you can connect with some people that also enjoy this obscure show that no one you know has ever heard of. So let's talk about it on Twitter and Instagram at one and done TV.